Welcome to the podcast of San Diego First Church of the Nazarene. My name is Dee Kelly, and it is a privilege to be with you and a privilege to enter into the study of Scripture as we dig deeper into the passages each week that are part of our readings. Um, I've been here about 15 years at this particular church. The church itself is about 114 years old. It started at a tent revival that resulted in the building of a facility not too far from where the baseball stadium, Petco Park, is right now. Later, the congregation moved to the north end of town, uh, at least of the downtown area. And then eventually, about 40 years ago, Pasadena College, that was located not too far from L.A., moved down to Point Loma and became Point Loma Nazarene University. We were asked as a congregation if we would consider coming out and providing a church presence for the university and for the surrounding community. And so we brought our resources and moved out to the point, built facilities that are just east of the entrance to Point Loma Nazarene University, and we are at 3901 Loma Land Drive. We would love for you to be part of our fellowship. Um, we are a church with all of the church activities that you might imagine. This past Monday, I had the privilege of leading a couple in a wedding ceremony. On Thursday, I was honored to be part of a funeral service and internment for one of the members of our congregation who passed away a couple weeks ago. We have babies that are born, baby dedications that take place, crisis counseling that's provided, baptisms, intergenerational meals and events, compassionate ministries of all sorts. It certainly would be a joy for you, uh, for us, if you would consider being part of our fellowship. Uh, we would be better because of that. We've got a congregation that's uh, very socioeconomically, politically, and vocationally diverse. Um, we have first responders, many who are in the healthcare field, field uh, therapists, researchers, attorneys, dentists, accountants, authors, journalists, stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, teachers of every age group, nonprofit compassion ministry workers, entrepreneurs, CEOs, those in various trades, salesmen, printers, librarians, and we hope you, wherever you fit into the mix, because you would make us better by being part of this fellowship. And as I said a few moments ago, it would be a joy to be on this spiritual journey with you. We follow what's called the lectionary. This is simply a collection of readings that span three years. It is a collection of readings that attempts, us, attempts to get us into all genres of scripture, the different parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. Um, each week includes typically a reading from the book of Psalms, an Old Testament reading besides that psalm, a gospel reading, and a second reading from the New Testament that's not part of the Gospels. Following this series of readings gives you a chance to read ahead, to use the scriptures in devotionals, um, to just follow along and be part of what many Christians, though not all Christians in churches, but many Christians in churches follow on a weekly basis so that you are part not only of this fellowship, but a global fellowship of believers that are studying the Word and trying to move along in their spiritual journey. 
Well, this uh, last brief period of time, for the last six weeks, we've been in a series on Ephesians, and that's where the second New Testament reading came from. And so for six weeks, we followed through each chapter of the book of Ephesians. That ended last week. This week, we are in what's called the 22nd week of ordinary time in the second year of the lectionary readings. It happens to correspond to the date of August 29th. And the four readings this week include a reading out of the Song of Songs, a fascinating book, a small little book in the Old Testament. What's interesting is that in all of these collection of readings, this is the only week where the Song of Songs is represented in the readings. So why would I want to miss the opportunity out of the four readings to pick this one um, because it's only referenced this once in the three-year span? It's not that I don't reference it at other times, but in terms of primary readings, it only comes up this week. And so that's where we're going to dig in this week, to look a little bit deeper into this beautiful, beautiful um, piece of literature. Interesting in so many ways. It's a, a love poem. It's intimate. It's romantic. It's sometimes attributed to Solomon, and that could mean that Solomon wrote it. It could have been written about Solomon, or it could have just been dedicated to him. But often his name is attached to this book. A collection not of one singular poem, but of many, many poems put together in a way that creates a dialogue between two people in love. It also includes um, a chorus of other individuals that periodically speak into the poetry and add their affirmations of um, this romantic, intimate piece. The reading that is for this morning is found in chapter 2 of the song, chapter 2 out of 8 chapters. We begin in verse 8 and read through verse 13. This is the beginning of verse 8. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. The language of this is the language of poetry. It's the language of intimacy. It's a language of romance. It's a beautiful, powerful piece that in some ways feels out of place in the rest of Scripture. An interesting attribute of this particular piece of scriptural literature is that God is never mentioned by name 
And yet it is vibrant. It is alive with spirituality. It touches the soul in profound ways. Some have been dismissive of it because it seems like it doesn't say anything about God. And yet there are others that say its purpose is to say everything about God. Origen, the ancient writer, wrote 10 volumes of commentaries on this short book. By the way, what a great name, Origen. Sounds like it ought to be a um, Marvel character um, name. Uh, maybe it is, I don't know, but I love that name, Origen. Another name that you may or may not heard of, Bernard of Clairvoy, he wrote over 80 sermons on this book and never got past chapter 2. So there are some who see this as the holy of holies of scriptures and others who don't quite know what to do with it. Well, I hope this is an introduction for you into this little book and some of what it might teach us. I want to acknowledge I don't understand all of the references, the idioms that are used, uh, they don't necessarily ring true to me and maybe to you in our current culture, but they certainly were relevant to the people of the time. Language that was used then that might sound a little bit different if we were writing the poem, if we were writing the letter so that others might read it. An example of things that I struggle to relate to or understand, um, chapter 1, verse 16 the verse ends with a phrase that seems so out of place. It says, and our bed is verdant, V-E-R-D-A-N-T. What an unusual word. I know what the word means. It means green. Um, but what in the world does it mean that our bed is verdant? Is it a reference to the color of the bed? I guess it could be. But far more likely, is that it is a reference to nature because there are so many nature references in this little book. A, a, a small eight-chapter book that makes references to over 25 different species of plants, to many, many animals that are used as metaphors or word pictures for something else. And so when it says that the bed is verdant, the bed is green, could it possibly mean that it is fresh, it is new all the time, it is alive and growing? It would seem fitting in keeping with the rest of the book that that might be what it means, but because it's poetry, it's left up to the interpretation of the one who reads. So I hope you read. And I hope you tap into the beauty of this book. Maybe spend some time just reading straight through. It doesn't take very long. And find yourself caught up in the imagery and beauty and passion and power of this dialogue between two people in profound love, in intimate relationship. So, a little bit more about this book. I mentioned that it speaks in word pictures. Authors Trent and Smalley say that word pictures are the language of love. 
or the language of the heart. Because word pictures tap into something more than just the head. They tap into what the soul feels, what the heart says. And this effort at word pictures, the language of the heart, is part of what we want to look at. I've become particularly enthralled with heart issues. Some of you know that my wife has faced some significant health challenges. She just this last week um, had her uh, doctor um, take her to a uh, hospital to have a, or send her to a hospital, pardon me, to have a cardiac resynchronization therapy defibrillator put into her. The leads, the three wire leads, go into two of the chambers of the heart and one just outside the heart wall. And it's supposed to help improve her heart functioning as we face these challenges. When we were in the uh, follow-up room a week after uh, the surgery took place, this was just a few days ago, um, the person who was telling us all of the details, helping us to navigate this, telling us what we should expect, not to expect. He was also testing the leads. And at one point in time, I looked over and I saw Kay a little panicked. Um, her eyes were a little bit big. She was leaning over just a little bit. I said, Kay, are you okay? And then the um, physician's assistant said the same thing. Are you all right? And then he realized what he had done. He said, oh, 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 I am so sorry. I um, forgot to tell you that I'm testing these leads and I just increased your heart rate and he had increased her heart rate up to 100 beats per minute and had forgotten to warn her that that was about to take place. First, it was literally shocking because it's an electrical current that makes that happen. But secondly, I was stunned that somebody could turn the switch of a computer and make that happen. And so I wanted to know, are you always able to do that? Or just because we're within a few feet of what it is that's taking place right now? I didn't want him to be at a computer not thinking and do something he shouldn't do um, a week or two or 10 weeks from now. So he calmed us. He assured us. He apologized multiple times. But I've become very aware of heart issues. I say that to say that they sent us home with a booklet that relates to the device that she had inserted just beneath the clavicle. Um, and it gives us instructions of what to do, what not to do, what to expect. One of the things that surprised me was um, that there was a discussion of items that you shouldn't have near this device, so near your heart. Now that actually doesn't surprise me, but what was on the list surprised me. The heading in the booklet for this particular category is items that should remain at least 12 inches away from your device. And at the top of the list is this, chainsaws. Well, it seems to me that if there is a chainsaw within 12 inches of the device, that interfering with the signals of the device is the least of your worries at that moment. It made me laugh because I'm not allowed to have a chainsaw. I mean, it's kind of self-imposed, but it's also family-imposed because I'm not very good with power tools at all. Um, I, I tend to mess up projects, but I love projects. I love to tackle a project, but very often my wife might comment and say, don't you think maybe one of your son-in-laws could help you? Or is there somebody at the church who might be able to give you a hand with that? And she's right. 
But when I say I'd like to give it a try, she is always 100% supportive. It doesn't matter if I fail. She's still supportive and encouraging me to try. It doesn't matter if I mess up the project. She will support and encourage me to just try and figure out how to fix it. She has created safe space for me to be me and to encourage, encourage me to try and tackle the things that are intriguing to me. So I know that there are things I shouldn't use or probably my lack of experience I shouldn't step into. I know when it's wise to call someone else. But what I want to say here is that the language of the heart for me is the language where she creates for me safe space to be who I am because she knows me. I want to do the same for her. It is safe space that we create for one another where we are known and where we want to know, where we are seen and want to see, where we are heard and want to hear. I am in no way saying that my marriage is a model for anyone else's relationships or interactions, nor is it true that this song of songs should be the model of how people should interact or talk. But it is a demonstration of creating a safety space that sometimes feels dangerous because to be known feels dangerous at times. But these two, as they interact in this book, are honest about their longings, their desires, their hopes. They woo one another. They long for one another. They talk about a language of consent, this mutual consent that moves them further in their relationship. But the reason this relationship continues to move forward is the way in which they participate together in creating for one another safe space to be fully who they are. Well, this um, book itself has often been referred to as a book that's part of a trilogy or a larger body of literature. I, I guess I, I want to say first before we jump into how it might fit within a larger body of literature, that one of its characteristics is that it comes from a beautifully feminine perspective. It's one of the few books in the Bible that we believe is primarily written through the lens of the feminine voice. 75% of this book is written through the lens or through the voice of the person who um, describes herself as a woman of color. She speaks that right in the context. And this feminine voice speaks so beautifully about the beauty of love and intimacy. It is the voice of the soul. In most languages, including the biblical languages, the soul is referred to in the feminine voice. It's responsive to the call of the Creator. It responds to the voice of the one who formed us, who knows us best and loves us most. I, I look at this particular passage that was the reading for today, and it makes me think, where do I jump in and pick a particular text out of this? 
And it just is representative of the entire book without necessarily having a place to stop or, or springboard because all of it feels like a springboard into spirituality. I mean, I could take that passage in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, there he is, gazing through the windows, peeking through the lattice. Well, that just sounds like a creeper. Peering in the windows, peeking through the lattice, almost like a voyeuristic individual. But in an ironic kind of twist, as soon as I say that, I realize that as I read this book, I am exemplifying some of those voyeuristic tendencies by listening in on someone else's intimate relationship. And yet we are given this great gift to learn, to grow, to understand ourselves better. If it stopped there, where I'm just listening in on somebody else's relationship, that wouldn't be healthy. But if it leads me to respond by self-revelation, opening up myself to others, trusting others, moving into relationships with one another in ways that allow myself to know and to be known. So what's this possible larger context? Well, this is part of something that's called wisdom literature. And it's not to say that all of Scripture doesn't contain wisdom, because it certainly does. But there is a section of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, that's referenced as wisdom and poetry. It includes this book, the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the book of Psalms. Those books are often referred to as the wisdom and poetry books. The book of hymns or songs is this book we've referred to as Psalms. There are three other books other than the Song of Songs that we're looking at that have a different philosophy or perspective to be considered. One is Proverbs. Proverbs in many ways is a collection of, of sayings, sometimes pithy type statements. They are principles, guidelines, rules to live by. And one might think that it would lead us to a life of rules. Rules and boundaries are good, and this is a way by which to learn what has been helpful to others in their journey. But I would also say that Scripture tells us that the law was put into place to lead us to Christ, who fulfills all the laws, and calls us into a different place. It doesn't mean that the statements of Proverbs aren't helpful. They are incredibly helpful. In fact, we will be talking about the book of Proverbs next week. But the life of rules falls short of what Christ has come to do for us. And so the first philosophy of life considered is the life of rules as depicted in Proverbs. There is the life of indulgence that's depicted in Ecclesiastes. And we have one who wrote this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, who had the resources, apparently the time, to indulge in every sort of thing in ways that you and I probably will never have the opportunity even if we wanted to. But we have somebody who's gone before us who says, I have indulged in these ways, 
And my summation of it all is that it's meaningless. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't lead us to the place where we want to go. It just leads to more indulgences that are meaningless. And so we have a life of indulgence that seems to be lacking something. Then there is the book of Job, which talks about a life of suffering. Some would say that the book was to counteract many of the other stories within Scripture that seem to imply that God blesses those who are good and punishes those who are bad, kind of a theology of retribution. And yet here we recognize that though God oversees all, this is not God punishing somebody who's bad. It is an acknowledgement that there is suffering in the world. God can bring about something beautiful and good from suffering or difficult circumstances, but a life of suffering is not what we've been called to lead. If we happen to be experiencing that, there are certainly things that you can only learn during times of suffering, at least it seems that way to me, but still a life of suffering is lacking in some ways. Then we come to this book, the book of songs, or the Song of Songs. This dialogue between the one who is loved and the one who is loving, though those roles get mixed up quite a bit because sometimes it's tough to tell because both of them seem to be loving and both of them seem to be loved. It is a book of love. It is a book of creating space to know and to be known. The power of the soul is ignited. Some would say that this is a dialogue between the creator and the one being loved, and the response is to love back toward the creator. It is a book of intimacy, but it is also a calling, a calling that we might live a life of love. The law leads us to what the law cannot do, and that is to change our heart. Deep within our heart is stamped the image of our Creator, and that image is a call to love. And so the invitation is to step into the journey of love, that we might do this together, learn from one another, Learn what it means to create space for this spiritual journey. This journey that draws us into expressions of being connected to God's creation and the themes that are woven throughout God's creation that we might see in it this melody, this dance, this pattern of grace. And that in being loved, we might love. In being forgiven, we might forgive. In being touched by grace, we might create spaces that are the outposts of heaven itself, that we might recreate the Garden of Eden, a restoration of the species, of the animals, 
of a connection to all that God has done, of pure love between ourselves and our Creator and between each other, so that heaven might be experienced right here in God's creation, in the ways in which we treat one another. I hope you will join us on this journey as we try to explore together what God is doing in us and among us. So, may this week be filled with all of God's goodness and blessing on you, but may the consequence of that be that God's grace flows through you so that not only will you begin to create heaven on earth, but in it you and those around you might experience God's peace. So, go in God's peace. God bless you.